1962, when a scientist and historian called Thomas Kuhn published a book entitled The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And it became, uh, by many, many people's counts, one of the most influential books of the 20th century. Certainly one of the most influential books of science. Kuhn's thesis was that actually scientific knowledge doesn't progress smoothly and incrementally like building a house and putting little re- uh, each little brick together. Knowledge doesn't work like that. Whether we realise it or not, we have a whole framework of understanding in our minds, scientists included. And what scientists uh, and the rest of us do actually, when we come across new information, is we actually fit it into that existing framework. The framework Kuhn described as a paradigm. And uh, uh, Kuhn suggested that uh, actually, over time, in science the paradigm, the framework of understanding in any particular discipline uh, becomes uh, littered, in fact, with more and more observations that don't really quite fit into that framework. But people don't change the framework, they just put the observations on one side and uh, suggest that they probably made a mistake or that perhaps someone else at some point will, sit, will demonstrate how that observation can fit into their framework, their paradigm. And it's only when the cumulative weight of those observations becomes uh, really quite heavy that uh, uh, sooner or later someone pops up who proposes a completely new framework, a completely new structure of understanding for that, uh, for that discipline, which actually explains those anomalies. And Kuhn said, at that moment, a scientific revolution has occurred. The classic example of that, for instance, is sometimes called the, the Copernican Revolution. Before um, uh, the, the 16th century when Copernicus was around, the general assumption was that the uh, sun and all the planets and the stars rotated around the earth, which was stationary. It was obvious, really. But actually, as people observed the movement of uh, the planets in particular, they increasingly noticed that there were movements of the planets that didn't really quite fit that model. It was po- Copernicus who made the imaginary leap and said, what if actually the sun is at the centre of the solar system and the planets rotate around it? That revolutionary view was vehemently opposed by some, as Thomas Kuhn pointed out, because people are ideologically committed to their uh, um, existing framework. But sooner or later, in fact, the the, uh, explanatory power of that new model meant that it was adopted and a new view of the world became the norm. Now, I actually think that's extremely important for us to understand as Christians. 
what Thomas Kuhn has said. Because, you see, to adopt the view of the world that Christianity portrays is actually to undergo a complete revolution in our thinking. It's not about adding a few bits and bobs to an existing framework. It involves what Thomas Kuhn describes as a a paradigm shift. A new framework has to be adopted. A completely new world view, as many people call it. For instance, um, Jesus and Luke, for instance, here, have been uh, presenting to us over the last few weeks revolutionary thinking, and it, which doesn't actually fit in the, the, the normal framework, the normal non-Christian view of the world. Most especially, after all this, the high talk that has uh, has gone on about Jesus uh, bringing a great revolution, he finally ended up dead, having changed almost nothing and gathered virtually no disciples. There was no wonder at the end of uh, chapter 23, as we saw last week, people beat their breasts and went away or they mocked him or they stood at a distance, confused. If you only read Luke's Gospel as far as Luke 23, um, and you tried to fit what uh, uh, Jesus says and Luke describes into an ordinary uh, non-Christian worldview, you would have to read the Gospel as uh, perhaps giving some great insights, some, uh, uh, a few wonderful prods and challenges, but in the end a great disappointment, something that promised much and delivered very little. But then comes Luke chapter 24. And uh, it's in Luke 24 that we really start to be challenged to adopt that new worldview, to see the revolution in our thinking that needs to happen. And you see, Luke knows, as Thomas Kuhn pointed out, that, that we are very, very reluctant to do that. Because the whole of life the whole of our world, the whole of our understanding of this world will have to be re-evaluated from the bottom up. So Luke repeats himself three times. Every time telling a little story um, which affirms the same truth. Um, The first story is in verses 1 to 12. The story of women going to the tomb. And there we find angels saying, verse 6, He is not here, that is Jesus. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. That's the key thing that Luke wants us to see in Luke chapter 24. Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what the women at the tomb experience. That's what those disciples in the room at the end of, uh, uh, towards the end of Luke 24 um, experience as they meet Jesus, as Tim was mentioning. And then the central story, the longest story, that is the theme of the story of this, these two disciples walking from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. And this is a Copernican revolution, a complete revolution in our thinking. 
Copernicus said to himself, what if the sun was the centre of the solar system? How would I understand everything then? Luke wants us to say to ourselves, what if Jesus' death is not actually the end? What if actually he rose to physical life again? What if one day this will happen to all people? What if actually that life is the centre of our universe? And this life is just a little preparatory anticipation. What would that mean? Luke knows that our minds will naturally, vehemently be opposed to revolutionary thought like like that. That's why he he, uh, repeats himself three times. Because we're comfortable in the framework that we already have. So, on this road to Emmaus then, Luke, in the greatest amount of detail, explains to us how these disciples begin to adopt this revolutionary viewpoint. They begin to see the revolution. And the first thing that uh, Luke describes to us in uh, verses 13 to 24 is how Jesus begins to encourage them to question their existing worldview. Their worldview that death is the end doesn't march up to them, actually, and immediately declare himself. He comes to them really quite subtly. Verse 13. Two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. So Jesus provokes them gently with questions, not revealing himself yet. He asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, then Cleopas, asked, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that have happened in these days? What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. And on they go, telling him, all the information that they have gleaned and that Luke has recorded for us already about how Jesus came to Jerusalem and died, but actually how people were starting to uh, uh, report that he was alive again. They record that he clearly had prophetic insight in his life, that he had miraculous powers, that he was a dynamic teacher. They have gleaned lots and lots of information about Jesus. But all of that information they are holding in their pre-Christian worldview, their pre-Christian framework. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In other words, they're saying, people who make a difference in this world clearly do it in this life, don't they? They must must, uh, achieve uh, physical rescue from oppressors. We're longing for God to deliver Israel from the Romans. 
all these promises that Jesus made, they must surely fit into that this life only framework. Anything which doesn't must be questioned or discarded. But the fact that they've uh, already started to recount don't really fit into a this life only framework. I mean, even today, for instance, people acknowledge, as they do, that Jesus was a great teacher. uh, Many people today would say he's the most influential teacher for good that the world has ever seen. But actually, when you start to read his teaching, his teaching is all about uh, receiving rewards beyond death. Is he a moral genius or is he a lunatic? An enormous proportion of Jesus' teaching just doesn't fit into a this-life-only framework. Or uh, similarly, at, a, at a, a purely historical level, the resurrection of Jesus, as uh, one historian has put it, is one of the best-attested events of history. It's recorded repeatedly by people who say that they are eyewitnesses or say that they have spoken to eyewitnesses, as uh, Jesus, uh, as Luke says here. And the eyewitnesses are, are, are portrayed as far from people who are, who are just sort of longing, wishing that Jesus had, uh, would rise from the dead, and so they sort of manufacture this wish fulfilment. They're, they're, they're portrayed as completely bemused and confused when they meet the risen Jesus. They're portrayed as people who took a long time to be persuaded and actually were some of the deepest uh, uh, sceptics you can imagine. It's actually only 21st century arrogance, frankly, that portrays them as as little innocents who were duped, whereas we we wouldn't be. They are portrayed actually as really tough thinkers. But they were persuaded that Jesus really had risen from the dead. And they were so persuaded that they were prepared to die for that uh, belief. See, if they were hoaxers, they might go so far in trying to uh, purport their views. But in the end, they would know that it wasn't worth dying for. The early disciples died to claim Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, there is oodles of evidence that um, yeah. casts real doubt on the this life only framework that most of us uh, uh, in this world live with. We hold to that framework very, very firmly though. So we discard any information, no matter what value it has, as not fitting into it. That's what people always do. That's what the human mind does. It could not have happened. It's a famous story of um, uh, Ernest Rutherford um, firing neutrons at... uh, a uh, little thin bit of uh, uh, gold leaf, expecting the neutrons to be slightly deviated and then he would find out the, the structure of the atom. And uh, almost by accident, he took his detector around um, 
to the same side of the gold leaf that was from which the neutrons were being fired and found that a proportion of them were coming straight back. And he said it was like firing cannonballs at tissue paper and finding sometimes them being bounced back. And to his enormous credit, he didn't dismiss this as some aberration. He decided that he needed to fundamentally rethink the structure of the atom. And so came the insight that there is a very dense nucleus at the centre of atoms. Most people are just not prepared to have their presuppositions challenged by these awkward bits of information. Just like Cleopas and his friend. They had the information but they needed more. Second thing that uh, Jesus does then is he explains for them the alternative worldview, an alternative understanding of the world. He helps them to see how coherent that is. Verse 25. How foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, he said. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It would be lovely to have the text of that whole discussion. Sadly, we don't. But the rest of the New Testament tells us broadly what Jesus would have told them. Jesus would have reminded them actually that the Bible's understanding of the world is that God originally made it good, very good in fact. But Adam and Eve, the first uh, human beings, spoiled the whole world by their sin and by their rejection of him. Generations later, God made a promise to Abraham that through a descendant of his the uh, damage would be reversed and actually blessing would come to people from every tribe and nation. But actually, as the descendants of Abraham were born, one after the other, it became clearer and clearer that the nation that came from Abraham's descendants, the, the nation of Israel, was a failure. It wasn't going to achieve this wonderful vision of uh, reversing all the problems in the world and bringing blessing to the nations at all. They were a dead loss. But then, as that started to become clear, actually prophets began to see something greater even than that. They saw that actually, in order to restore God's world, he was going to have to re completely recreate it. People would be resurrected from the dead. A new heaven and a new earth would be created. You know, frankly, in our, our modern day of uh, global pollution, global warming and all these other global problems, it seems ever more obvious, really, that if God is ever going to make this world good again, recreation is going to be the only way he's going to do it. Did you see that uh, item in the news about uh, plastic being in sand from every part of the world these days? 
Well, the prophets saw that recreation was going to be necessary nearly 3,000 years ago. But they also saw that actually the, the redemption, the salvation that people needed if they were actually to, to, um, uh, to live good uh, lives in that recreated world was not just from local political enemies. They needed to be saved from God's punishment for that sin. And they uh, saw that actually the great deliverer called the Christ would do that by dying in their place and taking that punishment on himself so that none of God's people then needs to face any penalty for their sins. But when they rise again to eternal life, to populate that newly created universe, they will rise with all of their sins paid for. Jesus, the Son of God, would pay for them. But actually, said the prophets, he wouldn't stay dead. He would rise again and begin that eternal life as a first promise, a first assurance that one day all people would rise again. He would, as Isaiah 53 puts it, see the light of life after his death. The Old Testament explains all of that as the story unfolds and Jesus um, with these disciples, explains that to them. This is a coherent understanding of the world that the Bible sets out. It is not a this life only understanding at all. Indeed, it says if there is to be any real hope, then there must be this new recreation, both of us and of God's whole creation. And there must be a radical forgiveness that none of us could ever, ever hope to achieve in our own lives. It must be won for us by God the Son, Jesus Christ, taking the penalty for our sins on himself. In order to make clear what Jesus means by the, the, uh, the, 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 this idea of resurrection, he actually demonstrates it very, very clearly that it is to the disciples in the third story of his meeting with his disciples. And we need to just look at that uh, just, just briefly before we come back to Emmaus. Jesus says there, it's not about a ghostly, spiritual, um, uh, bodiless uh, continuation of life. It is about the solid restoration of real, recognisable, physical life. Verse 38, Jesus says to the disciples, look at my hands, my feet. This is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones 
as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And they are still distinctly sceptical. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. And he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. I want you to see how physical my resurrected life is, he says. I want you to see how solid it is. I'm going to eat a fish supper in front of you so that you understand this is not some, some grey, bodiless, not very attractive continuation in some spiritual realm as frankly lots of people in Jesus' day believed. This is new physical life without death. That's what I'm promising you. I'm inviting you to undergo a Copernican revolution in your mind. What if that was to be the centre of your existence? What if a life more solid, more glorious, now not tarnished by sin and misery and death, was to be the centrepiece that your whole existence revolves around. How would that make you think about this life? Jesus then paints this new, this Christian worldview, this Christian understanding of the universe. But even that is not enough. No, on the road to Emmaus, he makes it plain there is something else that needs to happen. What I call a personal revelation. Verse 30. No, let's go back to verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. They explained it just a little bit later. Their hearts have been burning within them, as I hope your hearts are, as he explained that Christian worldview. But that on its own is not quite enough. They see, that they begin to see, this man is something special. He's explained something to me that I hadn't begun to see. Let's invite him in. He mustn't go on. It's very interesting that Jesus makes as if he is willing to go on. He is willing to do that today, sadly. People who will not uh, um, actually make the effort to personally engage with him. He is willing to leave it at that and walk away. But these two, they don't want that. They want him um, with them. More, more than that as well. They give him a place of honour at the table. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open. They recognised him and he disappeared from their sight. Now some people suggest that he is that he is um, uh, consciously emulating the Last Supper where uh, Luke records that he took bread, broke it 
and gave it to, to the disciples. There may be a hint of that, but uh, frankly it's, it's just a general description of what the head of the household would always do. And the, the key thing here is that they are treating him, inviting him in as the head of the household. They're saying, you, you pry for us, Jesus. You distribute the bread for us. And that's when they see him. Luke is wanting us to realise, you see, that uh, there may be plenty of evidence that a this-life-only worldview doesn't really quite work. People may even start to have a reasonably clear understanding of what the Bible portrays by its understanding, in its understanding of the world. But without that sense of personal engagement with Jesus, without that personal desire to have him at the table, so to speak, to treat him as the head, we will never see him. All we will see is him walking off into the night. Most of us here are Christians. For most of us, that new understanding of the world has begun to make its impression on us. One of the things that uh, um, Thomas Kuhn pointed out in his book about how science progresses is that these revolutions, though there is usually a moment, a defining moment, the revolution is also terribly messy. It can take a long, long time to start to fit all the pieces now into this new framework. And uh, uh, Luke, it seems, would thoroughly, thoroughly agree with him about the process of becoming a Christian. If you look at the book of Acts, it is very messy. There is a, it takes a long time for the disciples to come to understand the full implications of what Jesus has taught and shown them there. And if you know, um, if you have watched Christians or you know in your own experience, you will know too that it takes time for the full implications of this revolutionary new understanding of the world to really embed itself in our lives. That is, that is life. That is reality. I hope with me you'll be absolutely committed to letting that revolutionary understanding really impact us. This week I was reading about John Newton. Uh, Partly because uh, the celebrations of the 200 years since the abolition of the slave trade are coming in in the spring and we'll be doing quite a lot about that in in the church then. So I've been reading a history book This book points out that it took Newton 30 years to realise, 30 years from his conversion, to realise that actually the slave trade was wrong. He spent the first few years as a Christian actually being actively involved in the slave trade. But slowly the penny dropped 
and he was deeply penitent for that earlier lack of understanding. It may be for you. There are things that the Bible teaches, things that this new world you implies that you haven't really grasped. Those of you who've known me here for a, for for a while will know that there have been there have been things that I have only started to see clearly in scripture in the last five years, I would say. But embark on that journey. Let this new worldview revolutionise your life. But there will be people here who aren't Christians yet. I don't know what stage you're at. Maybe you haven't actually seen all the inf- put all the information together which challenges a non-Christian worldview. Maybe you just need to go through the facts as Jesus invited those disciples. Maybe you haven't seen actually how glorious and actually coherent the Bible's understanding of this world is. Maybe you need to have the Christian worldview explained more. Read some books, talk to me, keep listening. But maybe actually what you need is that personal engagement that says, Jesus, don't, don't go on. Come here. Jesus, sit with me. Be the head of my household. Jesus, feed me. It is only when we get to that point that finally everything falls into place. And if you haven't got to that point yet, then let me say, don't be frightened. It is anxiety-inducing to have your world turned upside down. Don't be frightened. It's a new world that is actually so filled with joy that nobody who truly sees it can go back. They just don't want to.